was it was it was good though to sort of get some of those thoughts rolling in our heads. It's an interesting scenario um, that uh, Paul was in, right? In the midst, in the midst of Athens, um, was a growing, um, a growing pulse towards what we could call Gnosticism, um, which is this idea that the earth, um, the the earth is sort of theirs to do what they would please to do with it. Uh, they would own the earth. So what they would do is they would actually craft idols um, from the earth to bow to and, and worship to, which was a real issue and an interesting uh, situation for the Apostle Paul to be in. in. Um, but before I, I dive into this, uh, I wanted to mention a few things. We are currently um, in a series going through the Apostles' Creed, which we um, had read uh, earlier. So why are we in Acts 17? Well, because partly the Apostles' Creed begins by saying, I believe, but it doesn't just say, I believe. It says, I believe in something. There's an object to the faith of the early Christian. There was an object to the faith of the early Christian. What was the object of their faith? Well, they believed in God. They believed in God. Now, everybody believes in something, but the creed that, the creed that we say is um, we believe in God, the one true God is the God we believe in. So we're going to be looking at that today. Um, we're going to be looking at this portion of the creed. I believe in God, uh, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. And as we look at this portion of the creed, we're also going to be looking um, at Acts 17 alongside it. So I believe in God, is what we state, is what we say. We believe in God. I believe in God. Um, to do a little background might be helpful. Where did this creed come from? Um, why has the church for centuries recited this creed? What is, what is the deal with the apostles' creed? Why is it in so many churches now? Why, why are we even talking about it here? Where, where does it come from? I think it's helpful to note um, that the nature of the creed, it's organic. It's an orga the nature of it is organic. The apostles' creed, uh, it wasn't formed or developed by church councils. It wasn't, um, it wasn't formed by church assemblies like most of the creeds that come later. Like the Nicene Creed, for example, which comes in the third century, that was formed by church assemblies. This one is a much more grassroots. This is a grassroots creed. It came from the it came from the resurrection of Jesus, right? There was no vote to cast yay or nay on sections of this creed. Uh, the creed, by nature, was a direct response to the resurrection of Jesus. The creed, by its nature, was a direct response 
to the resurrection of Jesus. This is what we believe. Furthermore, it was baptismal. It was baptismal. What do I mean when I say it was baptismal? Well, the early Christians would use this creed um, sort of as, as a way of, of answer question in baptism. The rooster would crow, and the newly converted were led naked to a pool, a pool of water, where they would be asked three questions. The first question being, do you believe in God, the Father Almighty? And they would cry out with tears, I believe. Then they would be plunged under the water. Then a second question, they'd come out of the water, a second question would be asked, do you believe in Christ Jesus, the Son of God who was born of the Holy Spirit and Mary the Virgin and was crucified under Pontius Pilate and was dead and buried and rose on the third day alive from the dead and ascended in heaven and sits at the right hand of the Father and will come to judge the living and the dead? Feeling the weight of the question, they would cry out a second time, I believe. I believe. And they were plunged under the water a second time. A third and final question, do you believe in the Holy Spirit and the Holy, in the Holy Church and the resurrection of the flesh? And a final cry of belief, I believe. And a final plunge under the water. This is what the early church used this creed for, was baptismal. But they had, like, they believed this. They didn't just they didn't just do this for no reason. This is something that, uh, this this is something that formed them. This is something that they they embodied. This this message was not just words. This message filled their hearts. They believed it. Do we believe like this anymore? I, I was reading uh, about how early Christians were, what they would do, what the, how they would live. They just had so much faith. Here's a few things we can just see as we ask some questions. What can we learn from, from these third century Christians? What, what did they have that, that we lack, that I desire for us to see grow in? Well, they had this thing called passion. They had this thing called passion and, and care for what they believed. The words of the Apostles' Creed was a summary of the Scripture's narrative. They were not merely recited, they were embedded Okay, into the very fabric of their being. The ancient creed formed the Christian mind. It brought joy and it brought unity. The creed brought joy and unity. This, this uh, interpretation, this brief interpretation of Scripture, the, the overarching narrative of Scripture put into a smaller form such as this creed brought joy and unity to the church. It brought much joy. By taking their pledge of allegiance to the gospel seriously, they were taking their relationships to one another seriously. Yeah, they commit, they're committed to something. They believe in something. They commit to something. If you don't have anything you're believing in, if you believe in everything, you don't believe in nothing. You don't believe in anything if you believe in everything. You're not committed to anything. You're not going to put your life at stake for anything. You're not going to have any passion or joy or unity if you don't believe in anything. So this creed was put in place to say this is what we believe in. It brought clarity 
and interpretation. The creed brought clarity where there were questions about what the Christian believes and helpful pointers to proper scriptural hermeneutics, a basic guide to interpret the scriptures. And if there were questions, they were able to delve into those questions using the scripture because the creed came from the scripture. And the creed came from the resurrection. So we believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, is the first portion we'll be looking at today. And I think it's valuable. I think this series is valuable if we, if we look at it with some depth. So firstly, we believe in God. Now, it is often thought that some believe in God and others do not. But it might be more biblical it might be more biblical to say that some believe in one God and some believe in another. Some believe in the one true God and others serve and worship idols. Everybody believes in something. You wake up, your actions or your motives are determined by what you're fundamentally believing for the day. Uh, th- th- this is how we live. We, we are people of worship. We were made. We were created to worship. Nothing can stop a human being from worshiping. Everybody's worshiping something every day. Um, your anger will be able to tell you what you're worshiping. Why are you so angry? Because I want this. Well, what are you wanting? There's a lot of things that we could be going into with that whole idea. I'm really trying to stay away from it because it can be very tempting to talk about that. But it's true. We are all worshipers, right? But look at verse 16 of our text today. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as the city was full of idols. The city was full of idols. This is who they placed their faith in. Uh, What did idol worship look like? If you want to bear with me, open up your Bibles. Let's take a look. Um, this is a very fascinating passage. It's really helped my heart this week. Uh, understand sort of the, the problem, the problem with disobeying God's command not to serve or bow down to other gods. There's a, there's a, there's a, a heart issue. If you turn with your Bibles, and I don't know if I have a great sermon for you today or not. That song, Blessed Assurance, ruined me. I couldn't think anymore. I haven't heard that song in such a long time, and it was, I was like in tears just singing that song. But I'm going to do my best here with what I have. Let's, let's look at Isaiah 44, okay, if you have your Bible. Um, I do think this is important. This was fascinating. Isaiah 44 um, and let's start in verse 12 and let's see what we can get out of this the ironsmith takes a cutting tool and works it over the coals he fashions it with hammers and works it with his strong arm It wasn't just an arm, it was a strong arm. (laughs) Works it with his strong arm. He becomes hungry, and his strength fails. He drinks no water and is faint. The carpenter stretches a line. He marks it out with a pencil. He shapes it with planes and marks it with a compass. He shapes it 
into the figure of a man, with the beauty of a man, to dwell in a house. Verse 14, he cuts down cedars, or he chooses a a cypress tree, or an oak, and lets it grow strong among the trees of the forest. He plants a cedar, and the rain nourishes it. Then it becomes fuel for a man. He takes a part of it and warms himself. He kindles a fire and bakes bread. Also, he makes a god and worships it. He makes it an idol. He falls down before it. Half of it he burns in the fire. Over the half he eats meat. He roasts it and is satisfied. Also, he warms himself and says, Ah, I am warm. I have seen the fire. And the rest of it he makes into a god, his idol, and falls down to it and worships it. He prays to it and says, Deliver me, for you are my god. Deliver me, for you are my God. This was the issue in Athens. This was the issue in Athens. That this is the issue for us. And I want to hold off on on going off about how this is an issue for us because you're like, well, I don't take an oak tree in my backyard and... and, uh, (laughs) um, form it into the image of a man and then cut some of it off to cook my food with. I have a stove. In fact, I have a very nice stove. Or I have a barbecue. I have a very nice barbecue. (laughs) Um, Obviously, the way in which our hearts function, the way in which idols function in our heart is different now than it was then. But what I do want to say is we are functioning in similar ways. But like I said, I don't want to go on a tangent too far on that. I wanted to talk more about that in conclusion. But just a few key observations from Isaiah 44. Was that not fascinating? Or was that just kind of, I don't know, I'm fascinated by that kind of thing. The, the detail that went into it, right? He fashions it. He brings it to shape, right? This would take a great deal of effort. A great deal of work would go into something like this. Uh, The language here, he is fueled by it. He is fueled by it. Like the idol actually provides him like physical warmth, but it actually provides him for more than that. It provides for him belief to go out and live. He's fueled by it. He's motivated, right? He's fueled by this thing. He is satisfied through it as he is warmed and fed by it. He bows down and he prays to it. So it's not as if people in Athens had no faith, but rather it was that the people of Athens had great faith in false gods. Uh, Ben Myers writes, uh, as we consider this idea, early Christian teachers were careful to uh, uh, deficiate the God of the gospel from the gods of Greek and Roman culture. The pagan gods are many, but the God of Israel is one. The pagan gods can fly into a rage. But the, but the true God is unchangeable and therefore totally reliable. The pagan gods can be inflamed with lust. But the true God seeks the good of humanity without any self-interest. 
The pagan gods can arbitrarily turn against human beings. The word arbitrarily means the pagan gods could just, for no reason at all, get upset, get angry, and throw you out. Maybe it could be for throwing off the emperor's new groove. I love that movie, The Emperor's New Groove. You threw off my groove! <laughs> and they, they kicks him out the window. Like, no reason at all, except for the fact that he threw his groove off. Our one true God does not function that way. Uh, the pagan gods can arbitrarily turn against human beings, but the, the true God consistently seeks our good. And while the pagan gods can be male and female, the true God totally transcends gender and the body. So what we see in Acts 17 is the city was full of idols. The city. Now, I hope this helps you just sort of picture what's happening in the city of Athens. Because this is what's happening. These are the gods that are present there. And, and the reason, the reason, see, the, the Apostles' Creed was written uh, to protect people from this kind of thinking. The Apostles' Creed was written to protect people from worshiping false gods, from putting their trust in false gods. Because there was many people, there were many people during the day who were sort of trifling with that kind of thing. And so the Apostles' Creed says, I believe in God. Um, now, there are some descriptive words that the Creed helps us with, which we'll look at. The first way in which the Creed describes God, because the Creed will help us understand who we're worshiping. You know, it doesn't just stop by saying God. He helps us. You know, God has revealed himself to us in certain ways. And so how has God revealed himself to us? Well, he has revealed himself to us as Father. Not only Father, but Father Almighty. So briefly, let's speak on this idea of God as our Father, because I think it's essential to our faith. God is our Father. He's our Father. Um, firstly, we might see more broadly that God is Father or Creator of everyone and everything, we see that in Acts 17, 28, for we are indeed his offspring. Being, the, being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone. So the Apostle Paul makes an argument here. Since our Father God has created all of us, we must not think that we're like gold or stone or ivory. It's a very good argument. Or an, uh, an, an image formed by the art and an imagination of man. God is, in other words, God is transcendent. He's outside of us and he created us, which is very important to realize. So God, God as Father is creator of all. And we know that because the, of the word almighty. God the Father is almighty. His rule and reign has no end. He has set his heart on his children before the beginning of time. And he keeps and sustains them to the end. So not only does he create us, church, he sustains us. He sustains us. He keeps us. We are his children. So yes, the Father is sovereign, but also the Father has adopted. He's adopted us. He's adopted us into his family. No pagan God talked about this. No, there was no adopt, adopting of, of this sort. More specifically, God becomes our Father as we put our hope and trust in His Son. John chapter 1, 12. But to all who did receive Him, who believe in His name, He gave the right to become children of God. 
All who did receive him, who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Ephesians 1, 3, 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundations of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Now this part's important. In love, in love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to to the purpose of his will. So when we, when we say we believe in God, we also say we believe in God as our Father, which is unique, which is special, which actually might be somewhat confusing to people who have never had a father. Like, this is, this is not a good thing that God is my Father. My Father was a terrible person. I, I suffered from abuse from my father. I suffered from negligence from my father. You telling me that God is my father does not help me. It doesn't comfort me because of my experience with my earthly dad. But here's the important thing about God being our father is that he is transcendent. He is a perfect father. And he shows us that through Jesus. His love for us in its thickest density is seen at the cross. We can trust in this father. He's not like your earthly father. If he were like your earthly father, I wouldn't believe in this either. If he were like my earthly father, I wouldn't believe in this. So we believe in God as Father Almighty. Key on this last thing that we're touching on the creed today. He's Father Almighty, but he's creator. He's creator of heaven and earth. He's the maker of heaven and earth. So God is Father and God is Creator. The statement, I believe in God, maker of heaven and earth. This was much put in place to protect people from Gnostic thought. I mentioned this, but Gnostics believed that the physical world was inherently evil. This world, everything material... The early Christians really uh, suffered from this way of thinking. Everything is evil. The world is evil. Your, your heart is evil. One, one um, thinker, a Gnostic thinker, would have uh, actually called a human, uh, uh, would call a human flesh stuffed full of dung. And that was a Gnostic way of thinking. Everything was evil. Um, this statement... God being maker of heaven and earth combats that way of thinking because if God is good, his creation is good. In a similar way, uh, the people of Athens had a twisted view of God and creation, as did the early Christians. It was slightly different. Uh, The Epicureans and the Stoic philosophers believed that the world um, and its created order was just due to mere chance. That just, uh, there it is. There's, you know, mere chance. That, that was their struggle um, in Athens. And so they would push all of their, all of their motivation was towards pleasure, make the best of what you can now because this is all going to go away anyways. Who cares about life? Just have a good time. Like, eat, drink, be merry sort of thing. Like, it doesn't matter. And often my heart is bent in that way. <laughs> 
if I'm going to be honest. It doesn't matter. I might as well, well, I can't right now. I would eat some Reese's cups or something. I might as well eat like 40 packs of those. Just pack down, you know, 40 episodes of this show. When we're, when we're thinking that way, when we're just living and we're just like, we don't actually think about how we're living, we're actually buying into this the way that Stoic philosophers would view the earth. It's just whatever. Like, who cares? Well, it, it does matter, and God does care about how you use your time and how you use creation. So the Stoic philosophers believe that the world and its creator order was due to mere chance, a random concourse of atoms, and there would be no survival after death, so who cares? Pursue pleasure in its fullest, pursue life detached from pain, pursue a life detached from pain, uh, passion, and fear. Both of these views um, result in idolatry, escaping the world or worshiping the world. Idolatry, replacing the creator for creation. We want to avoid this at all costs, church. We want to worship creator. We want to see his creation as something that points us to the creator, not something that is the substance of the creator. This is why Paul goes at length in describing God as creator. So let's check that out real quick. Paul goes at great length in describing God as creator. Acts 17, uh, we'll start verse 24. Well, actually, let's start in verse 23, if you have your Bibles there. Acts 17, 23. He said, For as I pass along and observed the objects of your worship, I found, this part's great. I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. Check out verse 24. It's fantastic. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. He And he made from one man every, uh, every nation to mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and boundaries of the dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet, he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, For we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. So Paul is saying, this is our God we believe in. This is our God we believe in. Creator. He's not like your gods. He doesn't live in temples. He's not formed by your hands. This is the God we believe in. We must not confuse creation with its creator. We must not confuse creation with its creator. And that's why the creed says, I believe in God, Father Almighty, creator. And church, we can gather around that and be like, amen, 
Yes, that's who we believe in. That's the God I believe in. Uh, G.I. Packer writes, The world exists in its present stable state by the will and power of its maker. The world exists in its present stable state by the will and power of its maker. Since it is his world, we are not its owners, free to do as we like with it, but its stewards, answerable to him for the way we handle its resources. It's not ours, it's his. We're responsible for being good stewards of creation. I hope that's helpful to you. In conclusion, the ancient creed states this belief in the one true God, Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. And God in his grace, through the work of his spirit, has revealed himself to us through his word in this way. And we as a church hold firmly to these truths. But maybe um, just to close our time together, because I don't want to keep us here forever, um, what are some things that we can pull away from this, uh, this, this sermon? Well, the first thing, this took me a long time to come up with. The first thing is, believe in God. It didn't take me a long time to come up with that. <laughs> but the creed tells us to believe in God. <laughs> believe in God as the fuel as the fuel of an idol brought false comfort. As the fuel of an idol brought false comfort and motivation to the people of Athens. What's the fuel of our faith doing for us? Because those false gods actually brought them to action and brought them out of themselves, right? But what's our faith doing with us? What's the fuel of our faith in God results in light and life? The fuel of our faith in our God results in life and light. Is your, is your life full of life and light? Or do we bow down? Do we toy with a variety of different idols throughout the week? I want to sit in this for a second and think through it. But we believe that if we try hard enough, we'll be better people. That's a false idol, it's a false gospel. We believe if we gain the certain friendship we long for, we'll be a fuller person. That's not true. That's not true. We believe that if we are seen at our best, we'll be respected. We believe that a planned vacation will bring relief. Well, it might. But can that be a false idol? Can it? I mean, all of these things are not necessarily bad in themselves, but can they be bad things? Can we make, can we make these good things ultimate things? Are we making good things ultimate things? Another scoop of ice cream and a binge watch will erase the pain. All of these may work as functional idols in our hearts from one degree to another. Um, but church, here's truth and here's good truth. We Christians know the Spirit stirs within us a sickly heart that convicts us and leads us to repentance. We confess of our idolatry and we turn to Him. We confess of our idolatry and we believe in God. Christ himself through the Spirit tears out the idol of our heart. Christ himself through the Spirit tears out the idols of our heart. And we once again with, walk in, with confidence reciting these words of the ancient creed, I believe in God. And as we believe in God, we are changed and we are satisfied by him. 
So first, believe in God. Secondly, embrace Him as Father. Because God is our Father, we can approach Him. We can approach His throne with confidence, knowing that He will hear with the Father's heart every care of life. We can come to God as a child comes to His Father. And lastly, we, can, we need to worship Him as Creator. So believe in God, embrace Him as Father, worship Him as Creator. Every part of creation, church, sings a song. The way the psalmist writes it, actually, is um, creation pours out speech day to day. Creation day to day pours out speech. And it points us. It, what's the speech? What's the song it's singing to us? It's saying, believe and trust and worship God alone. Every piece of beauty points to the beauty of God, whether it be the beauty of new flowers that blossom, the beauty of the sea and its greatness, the beauty of the sky and its majesty. Creation points us to his beauty and his goodness. So church, believe in God, Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. I hope this has been a helpful sermon for you to, be, uh, to listen to. I'm going to pray over our time. Um, but before I do that, I want to introduce, to, um, introduce our, our meal. Uh, we, every week, we are actually saying these, we're actually, um, we're, we're believing in this creed as we participate in the meal. We're, we're saying these things. Well, we believe in God. We believe in Jesus Christ. We believe in the Holy Spirit as we participate in communion. So we, uh, we get the opportunity to do that this morning. If you haven't already, you can grab a little, uh, we are using little packets for our communion right now. Um, the wafer is representative, uh, re- representative of the body of Christ that was broken for you, and the juice is representative of the blood of Christ that was shed on your behalf. So as Nick is singing for us this last song, we get an opportunity to participate in the meal together, which is a really great privilege and, and honor.